You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Thanks for joining us as always. Something a little different this week. I will not be sitting down with a, an executive from one of the 30 teams, but rather my colleague and a former executive from a couple of the 30 teams, Jim Duquette. Duke, how you doing, buddy? What's going on, Mark? How are you? I'm doing well. We uh, we hit the Super 2 phenomenon a few weeks ago, yeah. and today, with, uh, with the draft coming up next week, we're going to look at the first-year player draft and uh, kind of attack it not from who's going to go where necessarily, but how they're going to get there, uh, what you know, what what goes into uh, a team getting itself ready for the first year player draft. Obviously, it's a lot different than the NBA draft or the NFL draft, where uh, everybody's very familiar with the top college players, and uh, you know a lot of those guys who get picked in the first round step right into to significant roles with their teams. Baseball is more of a long game, uh, although we've seen of late guys going uh, from the draft to the big leagues within the year. Uh, although that's still rarer than not uh but but jimmy let me ask you this let's start out yeah. you, you've been an executive with a couple of different teams the mets the orioles what what is a draft war room like on yeah. that first day of the draft yeah it's interesting because I, I was in the draft room for almost my entire uh, executive career so close to 15 years 16 years in the draft room uh, and they all they all took on uh, about the same form. They you know as as you as we got more information, they became larger in terms of the information, and that's you know what teams are sorting through even now. But it it the the, the room becomes uh, you know it's 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 your war room basically for uh, for about a ten day period where teams are bringing in all of their top evaluators, teams scouts that have been traveling across the country. You'll probably bring in a a younger scout as well to kind of learn the, the ropes. You have your analytics side, your video side of the room. It's kind of divided up into those, into those different parts, medical side. Uh, and, and you're going through, you have a ranking system that uh, is a fluid one based on the information that you're getting and the latest starts, the latest uh, games that they've played, but you're trying to come up with a semblance of a ranking of a top 150 to 200 um, and then from there, you, uh, different teams do it differently, but but you try to rank uh, it by positions as well after the top, let's say, 250 uh, for when, you know, you can base it uh, based off of need. Most most every team still still takes the best available with their first pick, uh, even if they have a lot of, let's say, depth in a certain position, just because there's just so many Kind of what you alluded to going into it, you don't see guys go right from the draft to the major leagues, and so there's so many factors that can weigh into it. So you're better off, always have been better off drafting the best available first. Now, I don't have your resume in front of me, Jimmy, but how involved were there? Were there any times in your career where you were where the amateur draft was a primary responsibility of yours? So, so I, I was never the scouting director. That the 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 most so I at one point in my career in the early mid nineties I was assistant on the scouting side I was out I went out and saw the top uh, fifty players in the country and as I as I moved up the ladder 
even when I was assistant GM and GM, I, I saw a certain number of amateur players every single year. I still see them. I still see some now if it's on video, but I would go actively to, to, uh, you know, high schools, colleges, uh, uh, ACC tournament, SEC tournaments to see the top players so that I had a feel for, you know, what, where, who we were drafting and, and the type of player that we were drafting, how strong the draft was, that kind of thing. Okay, so here's my question, because this is one thing that's always fascinated me, and I've talked to some of the guests on this podcast about this before. How in the world can you narrow down the top 50, the top 100 from a collection of players where you're looking at, theoretically, every high school and every college program, every junior college program, there are so many players out there that you know people wonder, well, how could Mike Trout have gone 25th in the draft? Well, he's at this tiny little school in Millville, New Jersey, a high school in Millville, New Jersey. Right. How does an area scout cover enough ground to really identify who the top 50 or the top 100 are? And are you surprised that more players don't slip through the cracks? Yeah. Well, and, and I think you touched on why players do slip through the cracks is because you know, there's such a variety of talent levels, different parts of the country. You know, you can see a kid in uh, in Florida, uh, high school or college, playing anywhere uh, time anytime after uh, the end of January, where you can't see a kid in New England until it gets warmer in April, or unless you're you're catching them on the road, like in a in a you know a, a southern school during their spring break, and you know trying to compare a high school pitcher. Uh, in Florida versus a, a, a you know high school position player in New Jersey or California, it's really difficult to do. So you basically set up your set up the country in like a sales force. You have your sale, you have your area scout that has his own area. He ranks his top twenty or top thirty, and every guy does that. And then you have regional directors that that have a, a whole region, and so they're seeing their top in each of their area scouts, top 10 or 15 and ranking him. And then they're talking to a cross checker and like, Hey, listen, you need to come in and focus on these top 10 guys by, by region. And so the cross checker helps you at the top part of the draft, rank the top hundred. Cause he's going and bouncing around the country by the airplane and, and seeing the top guys. He has a list of the top hundred, 150, same thing with the scouting director. Um, and then the regional director will help you help you, uh, rank, you know, the next tier of let's say 200, and then you really have to rely on your area scouts after that. It's it's a true team effort. That's why it's it's uh, there's so many so much variety when it comes to this draft. And you better give, you know, the the Dada team take their their best scouts, their area scouts, and they promote them. That leaves a big void for a lot of clubs uh, in finding that hidden jewel. Uh, because you know you're that's that's generally been filled lately with younger inexperienced scouts and and you got to have an experience level to find those hidden guys that that maybe other teams bypass how much do teams the executives the amateur scouting directors the area scouts how much do they rely on those lists uh from places like mlb pipeline about you know well, this is who they say are the top 100. How much do they rely on those lists to make sure there are kids they've seen that they've, you know, that they're not letting somebody who may be perceived as a a top, uh, a top prospect, you know, make sure they see everybody they need to see. So I think I think that they they do rely on the list to some degree, uh, especially when it comes to seeing video, making sure that they haven't overlooked anybody, uh, making sure that their list is inter, you know is is kind of stacked up. As a comparison, 
Um, they, you know, they can use all of the lists, but MLB pipeline has been pretty darn accurate over the, over the years. And, you know, I think they get, it's, it's like a give and take really where, where Jonathan and Jim Callis do a tremendous job for the draft. They'll call teams and they're checking in, Hey, who are you looking at in this, in this spot? You know, they have their, their projections that they have to do. Um, and, you know, they get asked for information on their side. And I used to do it as well. Hey, wh- what, do you, what do you have? Do you have any information on, you know, these five guys that you might be considering? Especially if you're picking lower in the draft. You're not quite sure, you know, who's going to be drafted ahead of you. And so uh, you're looking for as much information as you can. Sometimes you call te- the teams directly. And other times you're calling, you know, guys like uh, Jonathan Mayo to give you a better sense of, okay, well, this guy's going to be gone by, probably gone by the time we pick, so we better start focusing our efforts elsewhere. Well, as Jonathan can attest, whenever I have any draft questions, I call him too. So uh, he's probably fielding more questions than he cares to between uh, uh, May and June. But uh, let's go back into the draft room for a minute. So you're there on draft day. How many people are in there? Who's in there? Who's making ultimate decisions? How many people actually have a voice in a typical draft room on draft day? So – yeah, the, the, the draft rooms are, are have gotten increasingly larger and larger, but you have you know the scouting director and there and this cross checker and the regional uh, regional uh, directors. Uh, so there's there's at least seven or eight there. You probably have an area scout in there. You have the scouting staff in the office, assistant uh, director. You'll have an administrator. Uh, you'll have a couple of interns. The GM, the assistant GM, sometimes the major league manager pops in for the first round and gets a sense of what's going on. You may see him in there. You may have your major league pitching coach in there to evaluate some of the top pitchers. You're using as many resources as you can to get the get to get these draft uh, drafts right. And even with all that said, it's very difficult uh, to to evaluate, you know, entirely. You can get, you know, if you get too many people in there, you can really, you know, get paralyzed with your analysis. So, you know, some teams will go the other direction and try to streamline it. But the more and more teams that I talk to and deal with, and I know when I was doing it myself, I wanted as many people in there as possible that had seen the players so they could contribute. So I've heard the phrase scout the scouts a lot talking to people about getting ready for the draft. How much does that factor into teams? How how much are teams paying attention to where other scouts are, who other scouts, who other teams are looking at? Uh, Do clubs really have an idea of who other teams are going to take, or is this – a bit of a crapshoot when it comes down to hoping the guy you want falls to you. It, it's there are it's a little bit of a of some luck. You know you have to you have to really um, you know you have to have a good relationship with the scouting director, or the previous scouting director. They're they're going to be uh, or the scouting director that's picking right ahead of you, and you know that scouting director sometimes tries to get information ahead of him. Uh, but it's also a competitive environment where you don't want to. You don't want to disclose it until very, very late. So a lot of times you'll have you know, three or four names that are mentioned that are in the mix. And, and sometimes you talk to the agent, too, and the agent will give you a sense of it based on their conversations. Uh, the area scout might have a, an understand, might have a good relationship with, with a player, and he, he can ask the player, listen, have you spoken to any teams picking ahead of ours that, that, that have expressed interest? Any chance, any possible way that you can get a piece of information can help you in the end. I think that's what you, you know, at some point too, you, you, the day of the draft, 
the information, you're not getting anything new for the most part. And so you just kind of accept, all right, well, here's what it looks like we're going to do. And, you know, well, again, we'll take our best available, you know, whoever's left on the board. That's usually how it ends. You know, I just wrote a, a big oral history on on Aaron Judge and, and his path to the draft and how he went from sort of being a marginal high school prospect to becoming a first rounder in college. And if you haven't read that out there, MLB.com, go check it out. Uh, I was very surprised Aaron had no idea that the Yankees were even interested in him. Right. Uh, he had sort of been focusing on um, on San Diego, on Arizona, a couple of West Coast teams. He knew Cleveland liked him a lot. Don Lyle, the area scout for the Indians, had been very high on him since high school. But the Indians picked fifth. They weren't looking at him there. And, of course, they didn't have uh, another pick in that 30 area because the 32 pick that the Yankees wound up taking Judge with, uh, they had gotten from the Indians after Cleveland signed Nick Swisher. So – Aaron actually thought he was going to go 36 uh, to the Diamondbacks uh, and almost got up to go to the bathroom uh, before the Yankees made their pick, thinking that, that you know, well, he's not getting picked here. He's got a few picks to go till it's his turn. Uh, and all of a sudden they said his name. So uh, it surprises me that sometimes the players don't even really know which teams are on. And I guess that's a credit to those scouting departments to not show their cards. I mean, the fact that, you know, Damon Oppenheimer was was set to take Aaron Judge uh, and and judge didn't even know it you know sometimes i would imagine keeping your your cards close to the vest is uh, is a big plus well I, yes and i think in that particular situation especially if you like the player a lot um you know i, I know you know with trout with the angels you know there was some debate on whether he where he was going to go when he would be available too uh and he fell a lot of times because a previous a previous kid who i drafted with the orioles uh, uh billy rowell was drafted out of the same area and he didn't he didn't fare as well so there's a little bit of a nick on, on on mike trout but also you know they had a tremendous relationship with him it you know if you find out more about a player or you know a player or you feel like you know a player and you don't want to tip your hand to other teams then you're very, very reluctant to to go in and talk to the player because, you know, as, as I mentioned to you earlier, that player, you know, he's, he has relationships with other teams. Uh, if, you, if, if teams have multiple picks, they may decide to take him first rather than waiting. There's a lot of rolling the dice in these rooms. Like, okay, if you have two, especially if you have two or three picks, all right, well, if I, if I draft this kid in the, with our first pick, I think this guy's going to be there with our second pick. But if it, if the, if that's reversed, sometimes it isn't he, the guy's not there that you're hoping. So you have to overdraft guys. It's very very uh, secretive in that area, and you have to be careful. All right, one more question on the on the uh, scouting front. So you talked about you'd go out and see the top fifty, top one hundred uh, in a certain year. Right. What happened? You, you may see some of these guys once, right? So you've heard about him, you've read reports. You go out and see a guy who's supposed to have this big bat or whatever it may be. He goes over four and makes an error in the field right. and you don't see him again. How much does that stick with you versus all the other reports you've seen, all the other video you've seen, et cetera. Uh, you know, if you get one crack at seeing a guy, yep. how much does that one crack really impact? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a, a very good question because most guys, and, and I was the same and I learned this uh, you know, from one of, one of the best evaluators been Joe McElvain over the years. He was a former GM uh, Kevin Towers was an excellent evaluator. He was a former scouting director. I remember talking with both of them, and Kevin in particular uh, stood out to me. He said, you know, they work all year, uh, scouts do, and know these players like the back of their hand. Um, if you're going in to see them on one time, anyone can have a bad day. Or I've gone in to see players where 
all I got a ch- I got a chance to see batting practice with Jay Bruce. I got a chance to see his him take batting practice and take uh, uh, fly balls in the outfield during the game. They didn't pitch to him any of the at bats. He went he went zero for zero with four walks. So that, I didn't take anything out of that. You know, obviously during the game, and so you have to defer to your scouts and what they've done. And that's what most general managers and assistant GMs do, even when they're seeing them. It, it, or if they have a bad game, it, what it does is it starts a conversation and allows you to question, hey, what do, what do you think here? I didn't see that. What did you see? And in essence, you're evaluating your own evaluators in, in those cases, too. Is the high school versus college argument really a team by team or, or maybe even scouting director by scouting director uh, situation where – some guys just won't take high school players. Some guys love taking high school players. Is that really just an individual preference thing more than anything it's, else? It's an organizational philosophy. A lot of times, you know, they, some of these teams they they're they're putting together algorithms like like they do even at the major league level, where um, you know high school pitchers with the re- the risk and track record they're gonna they're gonna fall down on teams lit on some teams list more than others. Other other teams aren't. Uh, fearful of taking high school pitchers as an example because they protect them in their in their minor leagues uh, it is it's it's really an organizational philosophy and a lot of times those are worked out well in advance as as I know you know you know those conversations are are um, are had uh, in advance of of the draft and you know it's certainly with your with your scouting director and uh, you know especially also with guys you know if you have a chance to get a college player that can be quick to the major leagues, uh, but maybe he doesn't have quite the projection or upside versus a high schooler who has off the chart tools, but you know is probably three to four years away. Uh, you're, th- those are the constant conversations that you're having philosophically and and e- even specifically in the draft room. All right, we're going to bring in our good pal from MLB Pipeline, our colleague Jonathan Mayo, the draft guru, or I should say co-draft guru of our site. Jonathan, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing all right. How are you guys? Excellent. Excellent. You sound uh, like you're not too tired, given that the draft is as close as it is. I figure you're probably dragging, but maybe the adrenaline runs uh, when you have this kind of event in your position. Uh, Jimmy and I have been talking about, uh, you know, sort of the draft from an executive's point of view. Uh, you know, what goes on in the draft room, who, who's making the ultimate decisions, you know, how you go about, uh, you know, narrowing down an entire country full of high school junior college and college players to you know top 200 uh so let me ask you this as somebody who puts together a lot of these top 200 lists from your side how do you go about putting together a top 200 list from a pool as expansive as as the one we're looking at a really big dartboard (laughs) um you know so so jim and i split up the country uh and each have different areas and uh you know, and I think in a lot of ways, the way I try to approach it is uh, a microcosm of how teams do it. Uh, in that, I'll start with area scouts, and I'll live in say Southern California. Uh, and when we're doing say our top 100 at first, and then 200, you know, which guys do you have? Do you feel are your top three round talents, and then you know, make that list, and then I'll run it by you know uh, as many cross checkers as you know time allows. Uh, and, and then we'll cobble together a list and then I'll send the list to scouting directors for the, then, you know, we'll send the list to various scouting directors and, and national cross checkers and, and to try to make sure that we're as thorough as possible. And of course, just to be clear, that's Jim Callis, not Jim Duquette. 
Yes, Jim Callis, the co-draft guru, as you so aptly put it. Yes. I think that's on your business card, isn't it? It is. Co-draft guru. <laughs> Jonathan, yeah, I, I mean, I, I wanted to ask, because, you know, when you're going through that and, and, you know, you see players as well, but try, you know, the, the difficulty that teams have a lot of times is evaluating the, the high school hitter and trying to rank him versus the college hitter versus the versus the pitcher, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the upside versus the kind of the now tools. When, can you talk through, you know, your conversations and then how you guys do it as well? Yeah, you know, it, it's, I think it's not as tricky as it used to be, Jim, just because, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, especially the summer showcase circuit for the high schoolers, there's a lot more data. So you can actually uh, compare like a high school hitter to a college hitter. Now it's not, not direct, but certain things, especially for the the uh, analytic leaning folks, that there is data out there for, for high schoolers. So all those events now have uh, things like TrackMan at them. So you can get exit velocities and spin rates from pitchers. And all that can be put into, into the hopper. Uh, you know, and so much of it, I mean, that's why it's always thought of as an inexact science because you're comparing apples to oranges. And, uh, you know, trying to figure out when you're trying to decide who to take with your first round pick, whether you want this high upside high school pitcher or this advanced college hitter, uh, you know, who's done it in the SEC, like, you know, but doesn't have that, like, the same kind of upside. You don't project them to be, you know, maybe the same kind of impact player. It, it, it's a tough business, and it, it's it's awfully difficult to to get right. Um, you know, my, my sort of go-to line when, when I talk to scouts, especially when doing, like, our, our mock drafts and, and trying to line those things up, and they're like, boy, I don't, you know, I don't envy you. I don't know how you do that. I'm like, well, I, you know, I don't. I don't have to write a check to any of these guys. Um, so uh, I, have, I have it easy. You know, people forget pretty quickly if I get it wrong or they're just, you know, accustomed to me getting it wrong, which is fine. Uh, you, know, if, you know, Jim, you know, when you were in the GM chair, like, you got it wrong, that's several million dollars you flushed away. So uh, there's a lot more at stake to, to get it right on that end than there ever is for me. Right. When you get it wrong, all you've done is flush, like, you know, 15 seconds of our time for reading it. That's really not that big a deal. <laughs> It, that, that's exactly right. Um, so, that, that's about how long it takes to read a standard Jonathan Mayo piece. <laughs> no, I meant the each specific draft, uh, you know, picking the mock draft. Speaking of those mock drafts, though, I have a question because when people are doing mock drafts for the NFL draft or the NBA draft, they're looking at, okay, this team needs a center. This team needs uh, a running back. And, and, you know, the Giants are going to draft Saquon Barkley and he's going to be their starting running back. How do you possibly do a mock draft of a of a sport and a draft where, you know, at the earliest, you're looking at a guy might be up within a year or two, uh, and more likely four or five years if you're talking about a high school kid. How do you go about trying to figure that out? And uh, of your normal first round mock draft, how many make you happy if you get them correct? Like, what's a, what's a satisfactory grade in your mind? Um, I think I got eight right last year. Oh. You know, that's probably about right. I mean, if I get double digits, I'm in pretty good shape. Um, there was a draft several years ago. That before Jim Callis joined us, he was at Baseball America. It was one of the first times I ever did it. And he got the first 17 right. And I remember at that point in time going, what, what did I just get myself into? I'm going against like a cyborg. 
who gets this right when no one else does now since then. You know, we, we like to have a little friendly competition and go head to head. And uh, he he's beaten me more often than than not, but it's always within one or two, and we get like eight or nine right. Uh, I'm happy if I get most of the the names right, even if the order ends up being wrong. It's awfully tough because you can't, you know, with the NFL, need can figure into the equation. Uh, I haven't talked to you know the the NFL mock draft people. There's we don't have like a cross sport support group, although maybe we should. Um, you know, so they talk to people within organizations. That's you know that's how we do it, and it's just trying to piece together what little bits of information you can get, uh, knowing that some teams keep everything really close to the vest. Other teams will put information out there just to get it out there to try to sort of influence things. Uh, and so, you know, it's always done with lots of grains of salt. And then there's certain guesswork where if you have three or four bits of information, you see if there's a pattern. And with certain teams, especially if teams have had the same scouting director, and or general manager for a while, uh, there's a certain pattern where you know, for instance, that the Chicago White Sox, it's highly unlikely they're going to take a high school pitcher because they just don't in the first round. And so that helps inform the decision a little bit as well. You know, Jonathan, this time of the year, we're, and we're inside a week, obviously we're very close to the draft. We're, we're a couple of days away. You get players that, that move up draft boards a little bit. Is there a guy like that stands out to you right now? I think the guy that's sort of the the most interesting, just in terms of being a guy I hadn't heard in the first round at all, and now is all over the first round, is Nicholas Schnell. He's a, a high school outfielder from, from Indianapolis who had a good summer showcase, sort of good all-around tools. Um, and I think more than anything in Indiana, just was terrible. So no one could see him. And then all of a sudden, uh, and I, just, I, I wrote about this, we have like a draft buzz, uh, running column, kind of running that Jim and I, that Jim Callis and I continuously try to update with what we're hearing. Uh, I was talking to people, you know, like one guy was like, yeah, I just left Indianapolis. Another guy was like, I'm just coming to an Indianapolis. I'm like, what is going on in Indianapolis? And, uh, and turned out it was Nicholas Schnell who was showing well and the weather had warmed up and uh, all of a sudden, in a lot of places where teams were considering high school bats, his name is popping up. Uh, you know, so he's suddenly become a guy who, uh, well, sounds could very likely go in the first round. We have him, I think, around 38 or so. Uh, and I think it's the kind of thing where, in a perfect world, a team picking in the, in the 30s, maybe with the comp round A or the very beginning of the second round, uh, would, would, would want him. But if you pick, say, somewhere in the 20s in the first round, and you have a really good sense that he's going to be gone by your next pick, and you really like him, you might take him. And that's, I think, why his name is kind of starting to float upward. All right, Jonathan, here's the part you love, which is where I put you on the spot and say, give us two or three bold predictions to look for at the draft. Wow. Two or three bold predictions. Um, I wish I had some, like, shocking thing for the number one pick, but I think at the end of the day... Casey Mize is going to go number one. So that's not, that doesn't really count as a bold prediction. I think that right now we've all been predicting that the first like six picks are going to be college guys. So my bold prediction is that someone in that top five is going to take a high school player. Uh, 
Um, that's uh, that's one uh, that's one bold prediction I'm going to make. Uh, and outside of that, you got me. Um, All right, here's another one. Kyler Kyler Murray's name has been a very popular one. Obviously, is the front runner to replace Baker Mayfield as the uh, quarterback at Oklahoma. Where does he get drafted, and does he sign? Um, I think he well, he'll only get drafted early if the team knows he's going to sign, and it's going to have to be a team that's willing to perhaps let him continue to play football. So, and there are a couple of teams that have shown a willingness to, to do that with players. The, the Cincinnati Reds let Amir Garrett play college basketball. The Blue Jays let Anthony Alford go back and play college football. Um, so I think a team with multiple picks that's willing to be a little creative. Uh, I'm going to say that the Chicago Cubs take Kyler Murray in the second round of the draft, and they sign him, and they let him do his football thing for like another year and then get him to commit to play baseball. That's what I wanted. A very specific answer and prediction that on Monday I can look at you and I see you at MLB Network and say, hey, you really got that one right. All right. And then if not, you'll be like, yeah, I figured you had that one wrong. <laughs> Jonathan Mayo, our I think I just tabbed you, our co-draft guru. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining us here on Executive Access. We look forward to reading and watching and listening to all of your analysis as we uh, lead up to the draft and obviously on draft night itself. Thanks, guys. See you soon. Well, Jimmy, honestly, is there anybody better to talk to about the draft than Jonathan Mayo? And and now that he's off the line, I'm not just saying that to suck up. I mean it. He is truly uh, as as informed and educated a person, him and Jim Callis, when it comes to the draft, as anybody I know. Yeah, and they're both humble about it, too. He's – He's more right than than he is wrong, and yet he he will profess to be, uh, you know, not not uh, nearly as right as he really is. And you know, getting, I'll tell you where they really are impressive. You know, first round, second round is amazing. They do uh, rounds all the way up through rounds ten on the first on the uh, second day, and the knowledge and information that they have on the number of players, it's unbelievable you have to pay attention to mlb.com i'm going to be a part of the coverage for the second day but they are the stars man they are they are incredible yeah i was working on stories on casey mize and kyler murray and i just kept calling jonathan to say hey uh, what's the deal with this what's the deal with this so he's like uh he's my personal guru when it comes to anything draft related uh let's finish up here with a couple couple more topics uh uh, going back to your executive experience so the, the budget factor, yes, that, that's changed in recent years. Now there's the 10-round uh, budget situation. How do you think that affects GMs now uh, as they start strategizing for the draft? Well, I, th- I think it – you know, when, when the draft is maybe deep, but, but there's no standout guys beyond like a Casey Mize as an example, you're more inclined to think about the draft, you know, in, in the entirety of the draft or if you have multiple picks, which is really, really important. That's where teams – the teams will will uh, you know the the Orioles have three picks in the top uh, like I think sixty as an example, and the ability to have to manipulate the money part of it where you might extend on the second pick uh, if you're able to get your first pick on a lesser type of deal, uh, the signability becomes so important and it's smart. Listen. The Astros played it about as well as they could a couple of years ago when they drafted Carlos Correa and Lance McCullers, and they gave Correa a little less money uh, where they picked him. He was a high school kid out of Puerto Rico, so they could sign McCullers, who was also a high school pitcher. Um, 
and you know they bypassed some pretty good, at least projected pretty good talent there. But they loved Correa and they loved McCullers, and so they were able to afford both. You're looking for that ideal possibility if you can pull it off in the draft, and, and so I think teams look at that. You know, a lot of teams do, not everyone. Not, everyone's not willing to kind of go down that road, but but there are teams that are willing to kind of play that we'll call play that game, and that's it's the flexibility is is uh, much appreciated. All right, now there's a guy I asked Jonathan about, Kyler Murray from Oklahoma. He's an outfielder, toolsy kind of guy, five-tool potential kind of guy. Uh, but he's also the front runner to be the quarterback for Oklahoma next fall, uh, right. replacing Baker Mayfield. Put on your GM hat again. How do you weigh the pros and cons of taking a guy, uh, a two-sport guy who, you know, he's look, if he, if he wanted to just play baseball, he could have been a first-round pick out of high school in 2015. He chose to go to Texas A&M. He transferred to Oklahoma. Now the opportunity is finally there. He backed up the Heisman winner last year. Now the opportunity is finally there for him to potentially be a starting quarterback for a big-time college team. I'd be very surprised if he doesn't go back to play football in the fall. So how do you approach the idea of drafting a guy like this knowing that? Yeah, that part's difficult because you ha- it's – there's two separate conversations that have to take place. What kind of baseball player is he first? And you have to get a sense of if he's a high end first rounder, like you suggest, if he was just playing baseball, he's that talented. Okay. That's, that's one piece of information. The next is, uh, you know, is he won't, does he want to go back and play football? And then the third piece is, does he have the ability to play in the NFL? um, Or is he just a really good college player, which we see on occasion, and that third part, third uh, question is the most important because if there's a chance he's going to play the, in the NFL, and and we kind of went through this, and uh, when I was with the uh, Orioles, we drafted Russell Wilson out of high school. He ended up, uh, we drafted him low enough that we didn't let we, you know, he wanted to go play football. He did. He turned out to be a start in NC State. He got drafted lower in the lower rounds by the Rockies. He played a little bit. But he went on to obviously be one of the best uh, football players in in the NFL. You saw him this spring in the Yankees camp. He had the ability to play at the, at the major league level, and he if he put his mind to it, he would have been a major leaguer. But he chose the sport that was best for him. And so, sorting through that information is not easy to do. You don't want to waste a high pick if you think he has NFL aspirations. He has, he'd be a guy that you would draft, you know, the second day or even the third day and take a chance on. All right, last one for you here before we wrap up. We talked a little bit about this earlier. This isn't the NFL. This isn't the NBA. You're not plugging and plug and play a guy who you draft. Uh, how much do you look at the speed with which you think a guy can get to the big leagues versus the need in an organization? You said before, first round, you take the best guy available. At what point in the draft do you start drafting based on uh, maybe needs for your organization and your system versus best player available? Yeah, I, I think what ends up happening, and every every year it's different. But you, when you're drafting your board on your boards, you're looking for you're drafting them. You're drafting for most teams are drafting for the projection. Who who has the highest ceiling? Um, in in going that route first, uh, and then as you get you know, there's not a ton of those type players, but a lot of times you draft, you're 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 ranking them higher, and then the you know. The, the guys who are maybe the number four type starters, they start coming into the equation or the, the everyday regular that maybe isn't going to be the all-star that next group, you know, kind of takes the day uh, through the first, second, third round. Maybe as you get to the third round, your boards are for the most part, they've fallen apart because, because other teams have taken, you know, your high players and now you get into, you get into the positions and that's where you might go through, 
in the second, third round, a, a draft of all, all pitchers. If you are devoid of pitching uh, or, you know, you might draft a couple of pitchers and then a, a position of knee, like a catcher or middle infielder, but the premium positions still hold the day for the most part, unless you have on, un, you know, ungodly power, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to take the up the middle type of positions because you can always move them to a corner if they develop into that. So, you know, I think, I think the answer to your question, long winded way of saying, you know, it, it, the drafting by position usually happens in that second day, early on, you know, second, third round, you get into start dra- drafting some high school kids too, playing around with that, that money. You might sign a senior sign in your third and fourth pick to save a little bit of money for the fifth and sixth rounder and overpay in that area. Jimmy, as always, I appreciate your expertise and your time. Another excellent job by you. And we'll uh, we'll do this again as we get closer to the trade deadline. That'll be our next special episode of Executive Access. So thank you very much for your time today. Looking forward to it. All right. For Jim Duquette and Jonathan Mayo, I'm Mark Feinstein. That will wrap it up for this week's episode. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Dodgers President of Baseball Operations, Andrew Friedman. We'll talk about his transition from business to baseball, his experience running a small market team in Tampa Bay and a big market team in Los Angeles, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. You know we appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.